0: If you're new with us today, and you've been out for the last couple of weeks, uh, let me catch you up to speed with this sermon series and the title. Uh, we have been talking about the table, not necessarily the place where people gather around to eat, although it could be, uh, but the table that we read about in Scripture, this analogous place where people gathered for the place of relationship with intentionality. They came together for community. It was a place of safety and a place of intimacy. As we've said every single week, it is at the table setting in scripture where covenants were made, where disputes were settled, where enemies had the opportunity to become friends and strangers became a part of your family. It was this place where the walls came down and people engaged with each other on a deeper level than they would in the day-to-day interactions. Uh, To be invited to someone's house for dinner or to their table was not just a casual eating assignment. It was to be invited into their world, into their space, to say, I'm considering you a part of my family. And thus, as a result, the last couple of weeks, we've determined that a table doesn't necessarily have to be a table. A table is simply any space where believers gather together with intention for the purpose of relationship. Uh, It can be a coffee shop. It can be a beach. It can be a park. Uh, I think since Jazzy's sitting here, I saw that this week it was uh, in pajamas and blankets at your house watching movies. I mean, it can be anywhere uh, where people gather together for the purpose of getting to know one one another for real, where we get out of rows like this and we get into circles and we take off the masks and we look people in the eye. We're known and we truly know one another. It's any place where two or more are gathered for the purpose of relationship. And we've made it no secret that the whole intention, the purpose behind this series was to get everybody in our church to find a table. We don't want anyone to just check a box, say, hey, I come to church on a Sunday and that's good. Uh, we want you to be in intentional relationship with one another, why? Because in relationship, our blind spots are seen and we have encouragement when we're walking through difficult seasons of life and if your kid's in the hospital, people are gonna pray for you and they're gonna buy you DoorDash gift cards and they're gonna make sure that you're well taken. That wasn't a suggestion by the way, but you know, <laughs> you're gonna have people that are in your corner and they're gonna fight with you and they're going to worship with you, and they're going to cry with you, and they're going to walk through seasons of life with you. That happens at a table, and I am I am so grateful for the response of our community over the last couple of weeks. Um, I was told by our statsman, David that this is the largest number of people we've ever seen commit to community in our church. In fact, as of this last week, over 300 people in the Father's house are meeting in groups on a regular basis, which is the first time we have ever crossed over that threshold. And, and that represents just under 40% of the community that comes here on the weekends. And that's, that's way above national averages for those of you who track that kind of thing. And so I'm so grateful that like in a city like San Francisco, where people are busy and uh, most of the time we're not interested in connecting with other humans. We throw our AirPods in, we get on public transit, no one talks to nobody, that we've been able to establish a community that genuinely cares about one another. It says we're gonna live life together. In fact, if you're the praying type, I would encourage you to pray with me. I wanna see that number click over 50% by the end of this year. I'd love for 100, but I'm happy with 50 right now. So let's pray for that in this community. If you're not in, jump in, get on the app, get on the the website, join a group, become a part of the family here at the Father house. Uh, But since we have responded so well to this call to engage in community, uh, I want to talk about a slightly different table today. Not coming back to the table of relationship, but I want to talk about a table that all of us need to be careful to avoid. Um, This was supposed to be a three-week series, and we were going to conclude last weekend. But in my studying and preparation for this, this, this series, I stumbled upon another table that I felt was particularly relevant, one that I think we might be able to resonate with a little bit today, and one that Scripture calls us to avoid at all costs. I mentioned it briefly last weekend, but it is, in fact, the table of demons, the table of demons. And I know that that's like a weird term. Someone's like, oh, that doesn't sound so fun. (laughs) I shouldn't have invited my friend today. (laughs) I think this is gonna be encouraging for us. I think as we come to the table of the Lord and remember what it represents. Remember, Remember this was last weekend for us. We talked about the broken body of Christ and how he's given us peace of mind and healing for our physical bodies. And he's given us healing internally for all the twists and a life abundantly that's been made available to us by his blood but scripture contrasts this table with another table, which I'm gonna mysteriously leave under this cover for a couple of moments so that I can tee this up correctly, but what Paul calls the table of demons. In fact, he does this little juxtaposition in the very same book that we were studying last week, and so we're gonna go back to it again today uh, in the book of 1 Corinthians, only we're gonna look at chapter 10 uh, this morning. If you have a Bible, you can turn there, and we're gonna look at verse 16. If not, it'll come up on the screen for you, but here's what Paul writes. He says, when we bless the cup at the Lord's table, aren't we sharing in the blood of Christ? And when we break the bread, aren't we sharing in the body of Christ? And though we are many, we all eat from one loaf of bread, showing that we are one body. You cannot drink from the cup of the Lord and from the cup of demons too. You can't eat from the table of the Lord and eat from the table of demons too. What do we dare to rouse the Lord's jealousy? And I understand that that is probably not the most encouraging portion of Scripture on any given Sunday morning. It's a bit intense. But here's what I've learned in a lifetime of studying this book. This is not a buffet. This is not a book we get to approach and pick and choose the stuff we like and then kind of throw out the stuff that makes us feel uncomfortable. If we're gonna live a life according to the word of God, we need the full counsel of Scripture. And so despite the discomfort we might face as we read Scriptures like the table of demons, that just sounds bad. We're gonna engage in it anyway, because here's the deal. I wanna make sure that no one in the Father's House community finds themselves dining at a demonic table. I wanna make sure that we are eating from the table of the Lord. So let's get after this today. Let me pray, and uh, and then we're gonna have a little bit of fun. Jesus, we love you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the power of your word. We thank you that your spirit is here to speak to each and every one of us. And uh, selfishly right now, as I prayed in the first service, I pray again, Holy Spirit, would you get me out of my own head and all the stuff that I could be thinking about right now in light of what's happening with my family. And would you use me as a a donkey, as a vessel today to just simply communicate your word to people. I know that your spirit is there with my kid and my daughter and your spirit is here. So I don't need to worry about what's happening over there. You've got that covered. Lord, may we engage fully with what you wanna speak to us today. And if anyone in this room finds themselves dining at the wrong table, I pray that they would come back to the table of the Lord by the time we conclude today, in Jesus' name. And everybody said amen, amen. All right, little uh, audience participation. How many married people here do we have today? Married people, married people, awesome. How many happily married people? Okay, (laughs) most of you lift your hand. good job, okay. Uh, Okay, here's what's gonna get fun. How many like newly married, two years or less do we have in the room? Any two years or less people? Okay, we got a couple back there. okay. I'm gonna put, put you guys on the spot, all right? I know you didn't ask for it, but I'm gonna put you on the spot. How long have you been married? Two years, and two, two years and two months, okay. A little over two years, but you're still somewhat newlyweds, all right. Uh, have you, like in the first couple of years of your marriage, have you guys noticed that maybe there were some expectations or some assumptions that the other person had of you and you didn't realize that and it's created some tension at times in the marriage? Have you, have you noticed that at all? <laughs> It's happening today. Would you care to share it with the group? No was <laughs> Little marriage counseling here on a Sunday morning. Yeah, that happens a lot, right? In the first couple of years of marriage, there's some things as you get married, and those of us who are married in the room, you know that like not everything makes its way into the vows. There's some things that are left unsaid, expectations, assumptions that you have of one another, and sometimes they're somewhat harmless. It could be, you know, maybe you're the person who makes the bed every day, but your spouse isn't, and you expect the bed to be made, and they're like, "Why? Wow, we're gonna get it in tonight and sleep again. You know, what's the point?" Or, or maybe it's the the dishes that you let pile up in the sink, but they always grew up in a household where you put the dish in the sink right after. You use it to keep the kitchen clean, or you know, as I mentioned last week, you know, maybe it's you had bread at every single meal, like your mom provided that for you, and your new mom, your wife, is not willing to provide that bread for you. And like, what the heck? Yeah, marriage is a bit of a learning curve. There are things that you learn, expectations that you discover post marriage that you didn't know about before. Um, I remember when we first got married uh, that my wife had some expectations of me that she had not voiced prior to marriage, expectations that uh, I was not as willing to embrace on the front end of our marriage. I discovered shortly after we were married that uh, my wife had decided for us, anyone have a spouse that does that? Yeah, she she decided for us that we were going to be a fast food free family. Gone were the days of the supersize number one and the nachos bel grande and the two tacos for 99 cents at Jack in the Box and all of that was gone. I was to simply enjoy what she provided for me and that was it. And as a big fan of the Big Mac, uh, I determined that this was information that I should have been made privy to prior to our matrimony. I'm like, you didn't think it was important to talk to me about that? You're just gonna tell me now, okay. But because I love my wife and I wanted to keep the peace in our home, um, I did my best to comply with these restrictions. However, I discovered very quickly um, that my wife's cooking at the time uh, was not enough to to satisfy me. (laughs) She's amazing now. My wife can can, can throw down in the kitchen. But everybody starts somewhere, right? And so we've been married for a while and things haven't always been that way. So I had a decision to make. Am I going to honor this commitment I made to not eat fast food, or am I gonna do a little pre-gaming on the side? <laughs> and I opted for the latter, unfortunately, and so here's how it would go down. My wife would tell me that dinner was ready and I would get in the car to head home, um, and I would stop by one of my favorite establishments on the way home. I pick up a, a Big Mac, McBeal Tea, quarter pounder with some cheese, filet of fish, a hamburger, a cheeseburger, a Happy Meal, milkshake, Diet Coke, big and order, smaller, fries, chicken, over yellow with salad on the side. Shout out to ski And I would eat it, scarf it down on the car on the way home. I'd leave the windows down so that, you know, there'd be no scent, evidence in the car. I'd pull up to the house if it was dark. I'd shut off the headlights, roll in in neutral, get the car parked out front. I'd quickly run over to the toter outside and I would bury the bags and the wrappers at the bottom of the outdoor trash can so that she wouldn't find it. And then I'd walk into the house and pretend like everything was fine and I would enjoy her food. But I discovered very quickly that apparently I married a bloodhound because my wife caught me cheating on her constantly in the food department. She would go outside and she would like, what is it, she'd go over to the toters and she would find all the wrappers at the bottom of the trash can or she'd get into the car with me and she's like, is that a nachos bel grande that I smell in here? You know, see like rappers that had like rogue gun into the back seat, evidence from a murder scene like calling me out constantly. And I'm like, okay, fine. So eventually I came around and I committed to not eat any more fast food because I couldn't get it past her. In fact, we were doing the math the other day and it has been about 17 years minus one slip up when she was pregnant with our youngest daughter that we, uh, that we have not eaten fast food. 17 years, that's a long time to go without fast food. All right, Thank you. thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you. I don't ask for much. Just thank you, all right? In fact, to take it further, my daughters, who are 10 and 8, they have never eaten fast food a day in their life. Never enjoyed a, a, a McDonald's Happy Meal. They don't even know the pleasures that have been you know, robbed from them in these days. My wife has convinced them that it is fake food, and if you were to offer fast food to one of my kids right now, they would look at you like you're absolutely crazy. Like, who are you? Like, that's how they've been brainwashed. It's great. Uh, but... I feel like I need to offer this disclaimer just for all of us in the room. Um, In-N-Out and Chick-fil-A do not qualify as fast food, okay, just to be clear. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, they are are Christian-owned establishments, and thus the food is redeemed at like a molecular level so that when it enters your digestive system, it like turns into broccoli. Come on, that's my theology and I'm sticking to it. That's my Jesus, hallelujah. Yeah, okay. So, for 17 years, I have not eaten any fast food, except for those. No fast food. (laughs) Now, 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 why do I tell you that? Do I tell you that to brag about my Puritan diet or to suggest that we're better parents than you because we don't let our kids eat fast food? No, I would never suggest such things. I tell you that because for a season, I was trying to eat from two different tables, For a season, there was some duality in my diet. It wasn't that I didn't enjoy the benefits of sitting at a table and eating with my wife. It wasn't that I didn't want to be with her. It was that I had this other appetite on the side, this carnality on the side, this craving for the delicacies of this world on the side. And so I tried to eat from two different tables. And you know what's interesting? My wife was not simply content to be included among my dining options. She she was not celebrating the fact that I was willing to tolerate her food along with some of the other food that had been made available to me. She wasn't looking for inclusivity. She was looking for exclusivity. To her, unless I was willing to solely engage in what was being provided to me, then I was betraying what she had made available. She was looking for exclusivity. And that is the tension that we begin to enter into here in 1 Corinthians as we look at this admonition from the Apostle Paul. A group of people that had found themselves dining with some duality. Some people that were eating from the table of the Lord and a table that he calls a table of demons. And it wasn't that they didn't enjoy what God had made available to them. It's that they wanted to enjoy some other stuff on the side as well. And they thought as long as they did the previous, as long as they did the former, if I eat from the table of the Lord, then it would somehow redeem the appetite on the other side of things. In fact, look at what the theologian David Gusick writes. He says, uh, the Corinthian Christians thought as long as we participate in the Lord's table, then we are surely safe in him. This is a redemptive one, right? I can do whatever I want after that table. But Paul comes and he says, listen, you cannot eat from the table of the Lord and the table of demons at the same time. By nature of your duality, you are sacrificing everything that's been made available to you here. So you need to choose which way are you going to go. So if Paul contrasts these two tables, I think we would be wise to do the same, to look at what, this table represents and what this table represents to ensure that we don't find ourselves in a similar situation. Now, to help illustrate this table of demons, I've brought some friends with me today. Oh, yeah. Over here, we've got all the good stuff that God has for us, all the stuff that our spirit craves. We have healing for our bodies. We have peace for our minds, forgiveness for our sins, a life abundantly, the Zoe life, a life of purpose, a life of intention, a life that matters, a legacy that goes beyond our days on this planet. Everything good that God has for us is here. At this table, we have the garbage, the stuff that we know doesn't satisfy, but somehow we continue to crave. And in those weak moments, we rush to this table, and we feed our flesh to get our fix. To that end, let me offer this definition for the table of demons. The table of demons is simply this. It's instant gratification. This is what I want. This is when I want it. This is what my flesh craves. This is what I need. And I know that it's not going to satisfy me. I know it's not good for me. I know it goes against the counsel of Scripture. But gosh, I just want this right now. And everybody else in our world seems to be eating of that table. And it doesn't seem to be affecting their life. And so can't I just have a little bit of this and a little bit of that? at the same time. Some instant gratification. This was the general naivete of the Corinthians. The Corinthians found themselves in a culture where the Christians were eating from two different tables. In in their day, as you walk through the marketplace, it was not uncommon to find food that had been sacrificed to idols. Uh, There were a number of pagan gods in the Greco-Roman culture, Zeus and Aphrodite and Diana and all the likes. It was not uncommon for people to sacrifice food to these gods, to have it blessed by the gods, and then they would serve that food in the marketplace to the passerbys. It was sold and used in the festivals when they all celebrated the the worship of their pagan demonic gods, and the Christians found themselves doing something that they didn't think was a big deal. They would go to church, they would go to their group, they would eat of the table of the Lord, they would enjoy all of the benefits of his table, And then they would walk out into the marketplace and they would begin to eat of this food that had been sacrificed to demons. They were eating of both tables. Their their general assumption being, well, hey, it's not like I'm not giving God some of me. I, I am eating from his table. I'm consuming what's been made available to me. But that's just not, I mean, there's more out there that I want as well. It wasn't that they weren't including God. It's that it wasn't exclusive. Now, I would love to hope that this is not a problem for us. I would love to believe that this is the way of the past and we all know better now. But I can't help but think that this 2,000-year-old Corinthian problem is not a 2021 church problem today as well. Where, Where many of us find ourselves... Longing for, desiring, enjoying, consuming the things of God. All that he's made available. Thank you, Jesus. But then walking out of the group, walking out of church, walking into our marketplace called the world, and looking at what's been made available to us, Yeah. (laughs) And eating from two tables. Wanting all that God has to offer and wanting what the world has to offer. This whole sermon was for that moment, just so you know, okay? (laughs) I was looking for an excuse to break a 17 year commitment to my wife and she's not in the room right now, but I wanted to blame it on Jesus. I'm like, it's for the Lord. I ate it for the Lord. It's for the sermon. How did he die? Well, he didn't eat fast food for 17 years and then he ate one bite and then he ate it all week long and now he's with the Lord, it's great, okay. (laughs) Now, because I believe this to be a present problem, I think we need to personalize this a bit. Lest we find ourselves rebuked, like the Apostle Paul rebuked the Corinthians, what does this table truly represent in our culture? How might we find ourselves dining at the table of demons? We play out a couple of scenarios for you. Jesus, I want the peace of mind that's available to you. In you, I, I'm grateful that this crown it broke your brow so that I could find a mended mind, so that I can find peace. I believe what it says in Psalm 112 that I can be like the righteous that doesn't fear bad news when they hear it, but that I can be steadfast in you. That my peace is not predicated on anything that's happening around me, but it is found in Christ and in Christ alone. But I also have this appetite, this insatiable appetite for information, and I love to know what's happening in the world around me, and I find myself feasting on the news and on social media and people's opinions, and I don't understand why I I can't seem to feed on all this fear, but still maintain the peace of mind that you've made available to me. I want both. Jesus, I'm grateful that this abundant life that you've made available to me includes a godly spouse. Let me, let me just speak to the single people in the room. If you have a desire in your heart for a man of God or a woman of God, that desire was put there by God. I believe that he is going to bring you the perfect partner to walk through the rest of your life together with. And it is not a, you know, the end and you're too old and it is done and you should just tap out and be celibate for the rest of your life. Come on, if there's a desire in your heart to be married, you may find that person right here in the, in the house of God. Serve the house, find a spouse. That is our mantra around here. But before you find satisfaction in someone else, you need to be satisfied in him alone. Satisfied, yes, even in your singleness. But there's a this girl, and we're out, and I just this date is going really well, and I just I just want a taste. A taste of the glory see what it tastes like I'm confident if I ask she'll come back to my place with me because you know I put my hand upon her hip and when I dip you dip we dip so so can't we just get a little little, little dip you know just see what happens then. God, I'm in my 30s and I have needs, and so so everybody else is looking at that stuff online, and everybody else is trolling that on social media. So so why can't I eat from this table, but also find the spouse? God, this food is disgusting. <laughs> God, I want your blessing on my finances. I want the blessing that can only come from you. I thank you. You're a provider. The righteous have never been forsaken. Their seed has never been begging for bread. But man. I really like also consuming all of the income that you give to me. You you want me to give you a tenth, a tenth of everything? Give it back into your kingdom? I mean, Jesus, I know that you gave your life for me, but you want me to give a portion of my income? I'm not so sure I'm ready for that. I would rather consume. Lord, I want to be a, a Proverbs 31 woman, a woman of noble character. People speak highly of at the gates. But I find myself also being a Proverbs 18 woman, which says that gossip is like tasty morsels that just go straight down into the stomach and they just taste like a cinnamon twist from Taco Bell. It just tastes so good. For the record, by the way, gossip is not just a female problem. There's just a whole chapter in Proverbs 31, so that was an easy analogy, but there's some men that are very, very good at gossiping as well. They indulge in some of this. God, I want the plans that you have for my life, but I've also got my own plans for my life. God, I want the future that you've made available to me, but I want to be the master of my own destiny, and I got a blueprint, and I got these pla- We dine from both of these tables, and then we wonder why the things that God has made available to us don't seem to be taking place the way that we thought they should. It's because there's some duality. And notice that none of these things seem overtly demonic, right? Like, they just seem like cultural persuasions. This is what our culture does. What a great tactic of the enemy to cloak something so demonic and something that looks very harmless. The Bible says that he's like an angel of light. He clothes himself in light to make us think that this is no big deal. But rest assured, this diet is demonic in nature. And Paul says, friends, you cannot have your cake and eat it too. You cannot have your God and your demons too. You cannot eat from the table of the Lord and eat from the table of demons at the same time and assume that we are going to receive all the benefits that have been made available to us here. God is not looking for you to simply include him in your diet. He wants exclusivity. He wants all of you. It's either all of you or none of him. That is the only way this works. And, and, and I know that, that in a culture of non-commitment, that is a tall order. In a culture that looks for ways to flee and not commit to anything, to, to, to demand exclusivity feels controlling, it feels aggressive, it's repulsive to some, but, but Paul tells us why God demands this level of exclusivity. It isn't because he wants to control, it isn't because he wants to demand more of you or keep you from enjoyable things of, of life, not at all. No, the reason that he demands exclusivity is because when we come to this table, we are not simply consuming what's been made available to us. We are uniting with him. We are becoming one with Christ. Come back to this this scripture again in 1 Corinthians 10. Look at what he said. He said, when we bless the cup of the Lord's table, aren't we sharing in the blood of Christ? And when we break the bread, aren't we sharing in the body of Christ? And though we're many, we all eat from one loaf of bread, showing that we are one body. We've become one. He uses similar language about the cup in Ephesians where he says, But now you have been united with Christ Jesus. Once you were far away from God, but now you have been brought near to him through the blood, through the cup. That is, that's marriage language right there. You'll see this analogous language all throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament to to display what God's relationship is with his people. It's like a bride and a groom. It is like when a man leaves his family and he's married to his wife and he's no longer an individual, but the Bible says that the two have become one person, one flesh. They are not divided any longer, but they are now one. In the same way, when we come to the table of the Lord and we eat of him, we become one with him. Let me say it like this. When we eat the bread, we become the bride. Not like physically eating this bread and suddenly we become something. It's the act of faith of uniting with Christ and we become the bride of Christ, as the Bible tells us we are. And that might feel uncomfortable to some of you, especially the guys in the room, you're like, oh, I know bride. I'm a man. But yes, even you with a beard and tats and buff, you're a bride. That's what the Bible calls us, the bride of Christ. And I have never met a groom that is simply looking for a bride that's willing to include him among her lovers. I have never met a man that was like, you know what? She's faithful six days a week. She gets a little sketchy on Tuesdays, but you know, I got the other six days. It's all right. What? Absolutely not. No, a groom who truly loves his bride demands exclusivity. I've been married for 17 years now. I demand exclusivity, I'm sorry. And she's been good about that, just to be clear, all right? I'm not interested in someone that's like, ah, I'm gonna see what else is out there. No, I want someone to honor the commitment and say, you and you alone am I committed to for the rest of my days until I see Jesus. That's what we're all looking for. And in the same way, In a natural relationship, we would demand exclusivity. So our groom, Christ, demands exclusivity from his bride. He doesn't want to simply be included. He wants to be your one and only. But Paul doesn't end there. He doesn't leave us simply with that truth. He actually takes it a step further. He says, hey, just one more thing before we get out of here. Um, I need you to know If you're the bride and you're married to Christ, you kind of need to understand who you got in a relationship with. I just need to warn you, he is, in fact, the jealous type. He concludes this whole section of scripture by saying, hey, when we try to do this, live in both worlds, eat from both tables, we are rousing the jealousy of God, provoking him to jealousy. Now, jealousy sounds like a bad thing, right? Like we've been conditioned to think that relational jealousy is something that we should avoid. You hear people say, "I don't want to be with the jealous type." What they're saying is, you know, I, I I want to I don't want to be with somebody who's insecure and is constantly thinking that I'm going to cheat on them. And you know, I want with someone that trusts me. You know, that's that's what we think we're saying. But you know what I found? I found often when people make the accusation of someone being the jealous type, it actually says a lot more about them than it does the other person. Because usually, what that person is saying is, "I'm actually the flirtatious type." And I would like to present myself to the rest of the world as uncommitted, but I'd like you to remain committed to me in the process. That's usually how it works. It's not necessarily a jealousy issue. It's an exclusivity issue. I actually believe that a certain amount of jealousy is a good thing. Like in a relationship, true love does involve a certain degree of jealousy, especially the jealousy that that Paul is talking about right here in this scripture. Because when we look at this word, look at what he says. When he says that God is jealous for you, he uses this Greek word zeleo, which means to burn with zeal or passion. To burn with zeal or passion. Come on, someone go home and tell your lady today, I zeleo you. I burn with passion for you, girl. To burn with zeal or passion. When it says that God is jealous for you, it's not saying that he's demanding or controlling, That he's insecure, that, oh my gosh, they're going to run away from me and go back to sin. No, he is zealous. He is passionate. He is burning with love for you. And I know sometimes those words fall on deaf ears because we've heard them a billion times before. God loves you. God loves you. God loves you. God loves you. Hashtag God loves you. We've heard it. But Holy Spirit, I just pray right now that everybody in this room would have a fresh revelation of the love of God. That we would be able to receive your love. Look at me in the eyeballs. He loves you so much. So much. It says in Jeremiah 31, he loves you with an everlasting love. Psalm 103, his love for you is higher than the heavens are above the earth. Isaiah 54 Though the mountains shake and the hills tremble, his love for you is unshakable. How much does he love you? Romans 5 says that when you wanted nothing to do with God, that he came and he gave his life because he loved you that much. John 15 says there is no greater love than someone who is willing to give their life for their friend. And even if you're here today, and you're like, there's no way God could love me, I'm an unlovable person, I am convinced that nothing will separate you from the love of God. Neither death, nor life, nor things present, nor things to come, nor principalities, nor demonic tables, nor anything else in creation can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord doesn't matter what you've done. He still loves you. He is zealously, passionately burning with love for you. And here's the thing about love. Love always demands a response. Love says, will you be willing to commit to me and to me alone? I believe that what the Holy Spirit wants to do today is If there are those who have been outside of that relationship, away from this table, by his love, he is beckoning you back to the table. There's been a seat with your name on it, and it's been pulled out waiting. Will you come back to this table? And here's how I want to invite you to do that today. As we conclude and the band comes, here's the opportunity I believe that the Holy Spirit is going to present. If you are away, whether you've been away your whole life or you've been away for a season, God is inviting you to renew your vows today. Renew your vows. Uh, I, I, um, I've married a lot of people lately. Um, that's a weird way to say it, but you know what I mean. I've, it's the beauty of being a pastor in a young church. We've got a lot of new couples getting married, and it's, it's fun. I get to celebrate love a lot with folks. Uh, and when I'm preparing a wedding ceremony with, with uh, folks, I, I always ask if they would prefer to do the traditional vows, you know, promise to love and to cherish, to have and to hold and sickness and health, ball and a broke, the whole thing. Like, what do you want? You know, do you want those? Or do you want to do your own vows? And most people these days, they all want to do their own vows, their own personal vows. I blame YouTube and Instagram and all the, you know, videos out there of people making you cry. And then people that replicate that. And usually it's a little bit awkward. But I've noticed something as I've sat between bride and groom in all these weddings, maybe for those that are married in the room, you've noticed this as well seems that these vows just get more and more grandiose over the years, and at least half of them, there's no way that that person's ever going to be able to commit to them. Come on, you've all sat at a wedding before, right? And she's like, I'm going to do this forever, and I promise, and you're like, nope, that ain't going to happen. I've been married a long time, okay? That's a lie. I, 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 uh, I'll give you a couple of them. Um, I was at a wedding recently, and, uh, and somebody said, I promise to always celebrate your uniqueness. I'm like, nope. (laughs) That uniqueness is gonna tick you off one day and you're gonna wanna stab him and not celebrate him. All right, let's just be honest. Someone said, uh, um, I promise to always hold your hand as we go on long walks in the evenings. I'm like, be married for a couple years and that walk is gonna be hand in hand from the kitchen to the couch and you're gonna watch Netflix and eat ice cream and not go out into the neighborhood someone else said recently, and this one's a a bit more noble. They said, um, I promise to always pray with you and pray for you. I'm like, maybe. But probably not the way you mean it. Because sometimes those prayers are gonna be like, God, I, I pray you'd show her that she's being petty and unreasonable in Jesus' name, right? Come on, you married folks know what I'm talking about, right? Those vows are cute, but there is no way you're gonna be able to keep those for the rest of your life. But you know what else I've noticed? I've noticed that even though people seem to break their vows to one another constantly, they still manage to stay together. I've never met a spouse that left their spouse because they didn't wake up early and make the coffee on Thursday like they promised at their wedding. I've never met a spouse that disappeared because they didn't go on the walk at nighttime. It seems as though love is greater than broken vows. When vows are broken, people can stay together because that's what love does. Love commits again, and then again, and then again, and again, and again, and again, regardless of how many times it falls short. And maybe you are here today and you have a catalog of broken vows that you have made to God. God, I promise I'm never gonna do that again. I'm never going to go down that road. If you get me out of this, I'm going to serve you the rest of the days of my life. Broken vow, broken vow, broken vow. And you're wondering if there is still an option to be united with this one whom you've broken your vows towards. I want to tell you as we conclude, his love is greater than your broken vows. Love commits again. His mercies are new every single morning. Though the righteous fall, they will get back up. He is not holding anything against you. And you can commit again today. You can renew your vows today. You can renew your vows on Tuesday. You can renew your vows on Thursday. Even those of us who've done a whole lot of this, you can renew your vows again. Because love is greater than broken vows. And that's what he's inviting us into. In fact, that's that's the moment I wanna wanna make available to anyone who needs it today. Would you close your eyes and bow your heads? If you're here this morning and you say, hey, Tim, I I am one of those that has been away from the Lord's table. Uh, Maybe you've never sat there. This idea of a God that loved you so much that he gave his life for you is something that was foreign to you up until a few moments ago. Or maybe you've known this forever, but you've been living your own way and you're far from God and you know you need to come back. You need to renew that vow to him. I wanna pray with you before we conclude. Before we pray, I wanna ask, if you'd be bold for just a moment. You would lift your hand and you would look at me because I wanna pray with you all week long. Thank you, I got you right there. If that's you today and you need to make that decision, yes, yes, right over there. Got you right there, got you right there. Yeah, right there. Yes, right over there. Right you up in the rafters over there. Come on, yeah, 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 yeah. Awesome. A lot of people saying yes today. Here, I'm gonna lead you in this simple prayer. You can say it in your heart. Say, Jesus, today I'm coming back to your table. I thank you that you've given your life for me. And in exchange, I give you mine. I repent of my sin. I repent of going to the wrong table. But today I thank you for your forgiveness and a new start. Help me to be your disciple, to walk in your ways from this day forward. Until that moment where I see you in heaven, and you look me in the eye and you say, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy that has been set before you. Today, I receive all of you and you have all of me. In Jesus' name, amen, 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 amen. Hey, thanks for taking the time to listen to the Father's House podcast. We hope it helped you wherever you're at in your journey. And listen, we want to pray with you if you're going through something right now that's difficult. You can go to our website, tfh.church and click on the prayer and praise link and tell us how to join you in prayer. Until next time, be blessed.